All right, hello. Hello. We're back. We've returned. This is Grace Taylor. This is Edward Grum. And we are, um, we're bringing you our second episode of It's Going to Be a Tibia, okay. Is that the first time you've said that word? I've never said it out loud before. <laughs> How would you actually pronounce it? It's going to be a okay. Yeah. But then it's yeah. going to be okay. I don't think it even had this name during our first episode. No, it didn't. Um, so we've just been, I guess, since we last recorded, holidays have happened. We've had some decompression. And now we're back at the Moffat ED. Actually, general. you're in the general. Yeah, in the general. But you were at yeah. the Moffat earlier. Mm-hmm. And the Moffateria. And it's been kind of um, constipated, I would say, <laughs> over the past couple of days. Um, but we have some interesting stuff to talk about today. Uh, and I kind of know what Grace is going to talk about because we were both involved in the case. Uh, and then I have a... Uh, world phenomenon to discuss that grace doesn't know what the topic is so um, maybe grace could take it away thrilling exciting all right uh so this case um this happened was this was overnight it was right? an overnight shift yeah. yes when we were working with ralph ralph wong yep um so this eddie and i were in the moffat ed overnight and we had a I see, I was just about to say a med pack because I'm already so much in the world of the general. But we had a resuscitation. Um, Pretty much close, like very close to sign out. Yeah, yes, that's true. It must have been like five or six in the morning. Um, and basically, I don't remember if they said it was for like respiratory distress or altered mental status or all of the above in the ring down. But essentially, the report from the medics was that there was a 30-year-old gentleman who had last been seen drinking with his friends and then was noted to slump over and fall to the ground. And maybe there was some, like, he was, like, some spitting up, like, froth. And maybe people, like, were unsure about seizure-like movements. Um, And when the medics got there, they were describing him as GCS3 initially. Mm -hmm. And his O2 stat was in the 60s and then was bagged up to the 90s. Um, so Eddie went and they, and they were bagging him when, when yes, we came in. when we came yeah. in, they were bagging him actively. Yeah. Um, and so Eddie was on airway and I was running. And when this guy, the first thing, I mean, you don't really need like to know, it's like, you don't need to, like, you don't even really need to see him to see, to know that this is going to be someone who's sick, but seeing him, he obviously looked really sick. Yeah. He was like very altered. Um, I think he really wasn't, like, talking at all, wasn't opening up his eyes, would kind of withdraw versus localized to painful stimuli. Yeah, and I was up at the head, and he he was, like, basically not making a lot of respiratory effort himself. I mean, it was just hard because they were bagging him actively, and um, he was breathing, but it was it was really not very reliable. Yeah, and then I remember initially he was being bagged, so we couldn't really get a good sense of his respiratory effort. And then the other, and his O2 stat was in, I think, like, the 80s when he, when he got Yeah, we us. got a report of the 90s, but, like, it yeah, never was. <laughs> yeah, and then the other thing that I remember is that he, when we kind of, like, when we were moving him over, there was a period when he wasn't bagged, and when we were trying, kind of, figuring out what kind of oxygenation or what oxygen support he was going to get. 
Um, and he was very tachymnic. Right. So we kind of did our, like, primary and secondary survey. There was no evidence of trauma. The neuro exam, as I mentioned before, wasn't really localizing. His, he was, like, protecting his airway insofar as there wasn't, like, frank vomit in it. Um, right. He was pretty altered. And then in terms of his breathing, he was pre-tachypnic and just, like, had ronkerous breath sounds everywhere. Right. Um, his blood pressure was okay. He was probably a little bit tacky. Um, so at this point, we were kind of, we were, this is, like, a kind of a weird syndrome, like, off the bat, the information that we've For given. Sure. Like, respiratory distress and altered mental status um, with, like, tachypnea. The medics had given him, we didn't mention this, but the medics had given him, um, some Narcan on scene. Baby dose, though. Yeah, and yeah. thought that it had done something. Um, and then we obviously have the kind of background of talks, because we know that this guy was drinking, and he's a young guy. Yeah. Um. And I remember, well, from my airway perspective, I was just thinking, like, let's rule out opiates as, like, like hopefully we can just get him breathing on his own but it was i guess at that time i didn't realize he was tachypnic i i like i mean i knew he looked in distress but i was so stressed about him not like his sap being so low and him being so altered i thought maybe he was just having really shallow breathing um and that narcan could still help I think it was still the right thing to do to just give him yeah. some Narcan. Yeah, it was kind of a Hail Mary, right? He didn't yeah. have pinpoint pupils. He wasn't no, predicting, but we knew that we were moving towards intubating this guy and that there was, like, a tox picture and Narcan's not going to hurt someone. So we gave Narcan and nothing happened. Um, so we were kind of still trying to, like, discuss what might have happened. I think pretty quickly, um, like, at the same time as preparing for intubation, um... And I, I think, well, in terms of just, like, thinking about etiology, I think the way he was breathing made Ralph and I were discussing that he could be really acidemic, and that's what was causing his breathing. Obviously, he was in respiratory distress and hypoxic also, but he was just, it was just, like, profound how quickly he was breathing in my, in my memory. Um, yeah, it'd so, be helpful, like, to hear what you, because I was on the other side of the room, and I didn't hear yeah. yours and Ralph's discussion. Right. And I was just scared shitless and trying to, like, prepare for innovation. So what were you, like, thinking at this time? Yeah, so we talked about, like, did he seize, and that's why he's altered, and that's why he's, um, and he's, like, breathing so quickly to compensate for a lactic acidosis. We thought about, is he septic? And that's why he's breathing so quickly to compensate. The last person I had who came in altered and super tachypnic had, like, meningitis, mm. like, and sepsis, and, I, and was... It was the they were breathing off their lactic acidosis. We thought about tox because I don't know, we, like there was this tox underlying thing. Like was he about aspirin toxicity, which is like I I literally think that I don't know why that that like was something that we talked about like before he was intubated, but I just like said it. <laughs> and we're um, just trying to figure out like what are yeah, you missing and just like saying all the things out loud. Um, and then we talked a little bit about like like. PE or pneumothorax or like why this guy was so hypoxic but um that was all sort of like it all 
Hi. And then, and sorry, the other part of this is like, is this collapse that was reported? Like, we still didn't know why this guy had been, had like slumped over. Yeah, do you have a cardiac arrest? Right, exactly. Do you have some yeah. arrhythmia? Exactly. He was acidotic because he hadn't been perfusing his body. That was totally on the table. Yeah. Um, did he, like, I mean, STEMI is still, is obviously less common in this age group, but we got an EKG like way late in the game on this guy, I remember, because I was sort of like hyper focused on like central causes. And respiratory causes. But also, but, like, ABCs, right? Like, he, yeah. his airway, or his B, I guess, was never established and yeah, as well. Totally, yeah, so, like, totally. it was okay, I guess, for us to get Yeah, definitely. Uh, and the other thing that we talked about um, was whether to intubate him without paralyzing him. Because we were all kind of like, this guy is not in a good place. Yeah. He's not well pre-oxygenated. We were, like, bagging him. Um, and like he had, he had like nasal cannula on as well. And there was nothing that that we were doing that was really getting his oxygen saturation above like 90 at best. So we were all pretty worried that if he were, if we were to paralyze him, he would desat and get more acidemic and like code. Um, so the one thing that Ralph and I discussed that I don't think you heard was, we floated the idea of intubating him without paralyzing him, and which is apparent. I've never done, but is apparently more difficult. But and you have to like push the tube through moving cords, but will save you this apneic time. And mm. um, we ultimately d- didn't end up going for that. Um, do you have any like memories or thoughts about the intubation? Yeah, I mean, this was um, probably the. I've had a couple scary innovations this year. This was probably the scariest because of my experience with prior innovations where like mm-hmm. like I had a I had a septic patient that very very much like you said was like super tachypnic from her lactic acidosis and and ended up well she actually we were like going back she was so agitated and I like I knew something was wrong and like we we were going back and forth about innovating her and then she actually coded before we did innovate her so I innovated her during the code so that innovation wasn't so scary because like she was dead while I was innovating her but um this was just knowing how unstable these patients are that are like breathing fast that like we're about to put on the vent and probably depress their respiratory drive we're about to push meds that are just gonna um leave them with a period of of profound deoxygenation especially in this guy who we never were able to get above 90 percent that was so scary like i and i remember i think i we were just like i think me and you were just kind of like going back and forth like is now the time like should i do it now i don't know like Like, i think it's better than ever because like it it was clear that we were never going to get his oxygen saturation above 90 Mm -hmm. um so i think like the lessons I took away from that was just being, I mean, I, I remember Ralph was like for a second, would, like was wondering if we should get a more senior resident to do the innovation. And I'm glad that I had the opportunity to do it. And I think it was the right call because it's important for us to go through these experiences as our twos. And um, I just having like all your backups ready. Cause I knew that I was going to like have one shot at this and like, I really needed to get the, um, get the tube. And so, I, like, had all my ideas about what I was going to do, but luckily the actual anatomical innovation was very straightforward. Um, 
the unfortunately in this case the RT um, we just had like maybe just a little bit of a miscommunication so uh, there wasn't uh, there wasn't like the immediate hookup to the vent so we had like a period of a little bit of, of apnea after um, right after the innovation and, and that was very scary I think it ended up probably being like 15 seconds or something but it just it was scary for everyone in the room as i'm sure you remember um but the actual innovation i think the pre and then the post which i'm sure you'll talk about was the most scary the actual innovation itself was pretty straightforward on this guy which is lucky because i i don't know what we would have done if he like was um if he had like a very tough uh anatomy we would have had to probably just bougie or if we anyway if we had known ahead of time i guess like i would have thought about like like fiber opting him or something um if he was like if he was clearly going to be like a really hard way to um to see his area but I, I i felt okay about being able to get a good view so yeah yeah, yeah. and then it, it was super quick i remember and yeah and the, the like hold up with bagging him afterwards was like i think we get so spoiled because we have such good staff yeah. and like rt does everything before we think of it and if there's so I feel like I never focus on being like, okay, like, and I, I'm not, I don't know if this would have changed anything or like what the delay was or the communication issue was, but I, yeah, I don't think to ask like, is there an end title? I don't think to ask like, yeah. are you ready? Do you to, actually have the like right, rag ready? Yeah. Right. I, and, um, so yeah. Um, and then of course you remember what happened right after that. Oh, that was really scary. Yeah. <laughs> so he decided quite a bit. Um, it's like the seventies, then down to the sixties, mm-hmm. then down to the fifties. I don't know if the fifties at that point. Was, yeah. At some point, he did was he in did, the fifties and eighty later in the. Um, I'm not sure. And I remember that feeling was like so horrible. And I was with I was next to you at this point because this was like after I was at the head of the bed and, um, I was like, shit, did I mess this up? And Ralph was at the point of he, I justify. I mean, I I had a great view on the camera of going through the cord. So I was super confident that I had, I had innovated this person correctly. Uh, and we had heard bilateral breath sounds, seen mist in the tube, like three checks that just confirmed that we were in the lungs. Um, but I think when you see a sat dropping while you're putting them on a hundred percent oxygen with a ventilator, like there's an understandable reaction to want to just like pull that tube. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, so there was some discussion about that. And this was, like, this was definitely a situation where uh, we, my, like, I realized during this case that, like, my differential for, like, what's going on if you intubate someone and then they start desatting was very, like, short yeah. at the time of this case. And this was, like, we definitely, like, it was something that I went and read about afterwards to kind of have a list Same. of things to check. Um, and there's also the I thought of like not pulling the tube ever because if the tube is in the esophagus, then you can leave it there as a landmark yeah. and like block aspiration and like pulling a tube blindly. I don't. I I'm sure, I'm sure there's a circumstance that I just haven't thought of, but like there's it's usually like I feel like leaving it in is also an, and looking again is a like more robust. Which we actually did. Remy took a look. Yeah. And yeah, and so, saw that it was in the court. So do we want to talk about kind of like the list of things to think about and do in this sure. situation? So one, 
you just mentioned. Look. Looking, like yeah. seeing, taking a look. Is it, does it look like it's in through the cords? Um, and then I kind of, in like reading about this and talking to a couple people, like I kind of broke down the response to this in by like, like anatomically, mm. starting with the lungs, going up to the trachea, and then going over to the vent. So, uh, sure. starting with the lungs, like, what could be causing someone to do that? Maybe they had a pneumothorax. Right. Maybe and, yeah, they had a small one. We heard breath sounds before. Right. And we put them on positive pressure and, like, we created right. tension. And now they have tension. So, yeah. ultrasounding or listening um, are both reasonable things to do to figure that out. Um, and then going slightly higher up, there you can have, like, obstruction at the, at the side of the tube or... At like a main stem bronchus, um, you can have like a. I was reading about like you can have if you have like the right like foreign body or mucus, you can have this like ball valve obstruction where like air can go in, but then once you start um, like expiration, it basically just blocks the tube. Um, like if there's basically the right shaped object just distal to the tube. So one thing you can do in that case is if you have RT who can suction through the tube or you can like take a bougie and thread it through the tube and try to just like relieve the obstruction. Yeah, exactly. Um, in terms of the tube itself, we mentioned like looking and making sure it's in the right place. Um, you can listen for an air leak, a cuff leak could definitely cause you to, to deset. And then like moving higher up the patient, you can just like, disconnect from the vent and start bagging because if there's some problem with the vent or the tubing you just like take that off the table yeah um and then the other thing which we didn't do uh but was to like just get a peep valve and start bagging with a bunch of peep which kind of is foreshadowing to right what happened in this case yeah, we probably should have done that in retrospect yeah probably. um we didn't know i mean we yeah just, we were still yeah. it was still i think we yeah. were like we kind of were at like looking for other reasons before figuring out the role that Pete would play for this guy. Um, so then the tube was confirmed. He was intubated. I was, we were, um, and he was persistently hypoxic. So it kind of seems to me like when he was bagged more like, um, like energetically or faster, his O2 sat would go up, and if there was ever like a lapse in his bagging, or even just bagged at like a lower, like less, his O2 sat would go down. But that didn't make sense to me at the time because I was like, this isn't a ventilation problem. Like, right. why would hyperventilating him um, make his like make his O2 sat go up? But I think that that was that correlation was there, but not for the reason that I thought of. Because of pressure. Yeah. Totally because of peep. So we his O2 sat basically like just got came up slowly with bagging um and when uh and then the chest x-ray demonstrated a kind of the next like useful piece of information in this case which is that he had diffuse bilateral infiltrates um so and at that point i think icu was down yeah and they started doing some like lung like alveolar recruitment technique so basically like bagging um just like bagging really aggressively essentially with very little time for expiration to um build up peep in the lungs kind of by hand and this managed to get his OG set up to like the mid 90s so 
at that point we kind of we still weren't sure what had caused the underlying insult for this guy because again this is a young healthy guy who's suddenly dramatically hypoxic yeah. and has bilateral infiltration on and do we call this ards if it's like is that where you're going so yeah, yeah so yeah like at this point it's everything what we're looking at is ards definitionally ARDS, or Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, is defined by 1. Acuity, onset over one week or less. 2. Bilateral opacities on chest x-ray. 3. Ep2F ratio less than 300. And 4. Not fully explained by heart failure. What we're looking at is ARDS, definitionally. And the question of like whether he had an insult and then ARDS developed or he had like a massive aspiration that led to arts like physiology is not clear to me. Mm. I like I tried to read a little bit and to see because ultimately to like skip forward a little bit, he was found to have on the CT of his chest a great deal of probably vomit um, versus multifocal pneumonia, thanks radiology, um, <laughs> in his lungs. And so I'm not sure if like in, I couldn't really find like a minimum time to arts developing. And so just briefly. Well, we're on the topic. ARDS is basically, as everyone knows, like an inflammatory reaction in the lungs that can be from any number of insults anywhere in the body. It can be sepsis not involving the lungs, it can be pancreatitis, it can be trauma, where you end up getting like dysfunction at the the levels of the of level of the alveoli and a bunch of a bunch of fluid in the lungs essentially. So you get this it decreases lung compliance and it decreases gas exchange. And I, they did, I mean, I guess they were able to bring up his O2Z, but then it came back to, I mean, they hooked him up to the vent and yeah. he drifted. I mean, they, I, we started at a peep of 10. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, that's really like pretty, I mean, that's like a good peep and mm-hmm. it should increase his O2Z and it was barely able to keep him above 70. Yeah. And we had to, we kept, uh, we with ICU kept trying to like, do like more optimal vent settings that would allow him to keep oxygenating and then kept having to take him off the vent and just hand bag him to maintain his sats. Um, so the other piece of this was like diagnostic, um, trying to figure out what had happened initially. Um, so we, I also was worried that maybe he had had like a brain bleed and that was why he was altered. Right. Um, which turned out not to be the case. The CT of his head was negative. We also CT'd his chest and belly just since there was so much uncertainty in the case at this point, um, which showed the like massive multifocal infiltrates on his chest CT and notably no PE, because that's another like that could have been a, another insight. Right, if he had a massive PE, totally caused him to collapse, and then he was altered because he was hypoxic. Um, so we, but none of that was unrevealing. His belly CT was unrevealing as well. So then he, in the emergency department, you know, admitted to the ICU, there were like four critical care doctors in the room with him for like an hour or two. The attendant came down. Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to get his oxygen saturation above like the 50s and 60s. Um, That was wild. It was really, I was. And meanwhile, like we're trying to get to sign out. Yeah. Like this was like right, I think at the end of the shift. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, and then they paged CT surgery. Yeah, they did. So we can, like, maybe we can review sort of what some of the treatments for ARDS. (coughs) 
So basically, one of them we've already kind of talked about, which is high peep, trying to recruit alveoli. And the, the other one is, along with fan settings, is wanting to maintain low tidal volumes to reduce barotrauma, like with the ARDS protocol, tidal volumes. Um, and then most of this is more like for the ICU, although some of it came, in this case, were, were used in the ED. Um, so paralysis improves oxygenation. So he had been intubated with rock and was started on, I believe, a cisatricurium drip while he was yeah, still in the ED he was. to maintain paralysis. Um, besides that, there's some evidence that inhaled uh, nitric oxide can improve oxygenation, although there's not like a clear mortality benefit. Um, and then more outside of the ED, um, proning is a big deal. If you put these patients prone, it improves their VQ mismatch. So they have these like, they look like, there's really nothing. They look like like these like weird capsules, like from the Matrix, that you put patients in that hold them prone in a way that doesn't like mess up their vent. Or yeah. Like... So that was utilized for this patient ultimately. It's like a, like a space capsule. Yeah, it's they're really they're really high tech. It's ridiculous. Um, and then fluid management is another important thing, as you might expect in these people that have like fluid in their lungs, keeping them a little bit volume negative uh, might be useful. Are you supposed this. to diurese them? So you can if they're not volume, if, if like they're not yeah, yeah. being negative, you can diurese them. And then the kind of last, but never least, is ECMO. So uh, as Eddie mentioned, CT surgery was consulted for this guy, but they did not end up doing ECMO. And I'm not sure what their threshold was because I was following his PAO2s and they were like in the 50s for like over a day. So when... Uh, that's wild. Yeah. So your P to F ratio is like 50 to 100 in that case, which is like very, very severe ARDS. So. Uh, yeah. I don't know what their threshold is. I mean, I guess... Yeah. I... I, I... I think they probably were seeing some improvement with, with yeah, peep related, yeah, peep related vent settings, and they, they were just hoping that that would, and maybe like once they sort of had the inertia of not doing an immediate like in right. the immediate setting, they just kind of watched the patient in the ICU. But you're right, like to have days of that low of oxygen saturation is. That's got to be pretty damaging to the brain. Yeah. So when what was the last thing you read about this guy and following his record? The last thing I read is that, let's see, um, Utox was negative. Um, so I think the thought was like this was related. The thought of the ICU of what I read was like this was related probably, as you said, to like um, drinking and then passing out and aspirating into his airway. Um, a lot of vomit. Uh and maybe he sees, maybe he, like, had a, some sort of cardiac event, but, like, clearly just, like, flooded his lungs. And, um, but I think I last saw that he, at least his, oxi- his oxygenation was improving, and we didn't know about his mental status. That was um, the last I saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I just checked today after losing, after like not following for a few days after switching to the general, and he was extubated four days after his admission, um, and he was 
neurologically doing well, it sounded like. Although, like... What? Well, that's the thing, is that, like, it says, like, alert and oriented, smiling, like, so whether there and there are like obviously you can have cognitive effects from long periods of hypoxia so they didn't say like you know there wasn't like advanced neuropsych testing sure, like sure, what did sure. his family think or whatever but like better than uh, what we were all either concerned of us about would expect, yeah absolutely yeah. because like so, even his time of hypoxia in the ED was concerning to totally me. yeah and then to have days of that PDF ratio yeah. is yeah, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, he, his course was a little bit complicated. He did get a little bit septic. Um, <laughs> but uh, from, like, basically aspiration pneumonia, it sounded like his blood grew out something that was probably coming from his lungs. Um, but he walked out of the hospital. Like, like He left? Week. He left. He was discharged. No way. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that is really cool. That actually makes... Because I think both of us were feeling really, like, sh- shooketh after that case. Totally. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, like, couldn't... I couldn't, like, fall asleep that morning when I got home. Yeah. Because he was this young, healthy guy, like, not doing anything too crazy, it sounded well, like. Well, it just, like, reminded me of, like, it could be happen to any of our friends or yeah. us, you know? Yeah. Um, that's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think you did a really good job with that case and clearly like clearly like we recognized what had to be done and we did it and I don't know I am I am very surprised that he is doing well and I think that's really great and it's just a good reminder I guess um to never drink to never drink <laughs> as I finish my beer <laughs> um yeah that's a that's a, that was a good case. And it was fun that we got to do that yeah, together. Yeah, I know. That was awesome. Anyway. Okay. On to your... On to me. So. Back to me. Back to me. <laughs> and I have something for you. Okay. So I'll start with like a couple of anecdotes. Are you ready? I'm so ready. In 1951, Mary Reeser... She was age 67, and she was living in St. Petersburg, Florida. Was discovered burned to death in her house. And they measured the temperature of her charred remains, and it was 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, stop. Hold on. What? Was that, like, right after she had burned to death? (laughs) Like, you can still burn to death, and then you would cool at... So that must have been... They must have found her pretty quickly? I guess so. I don't know who called the police. Also, where are these... What? <laughs> like, who puts a thermometer yeah, in? Yeah, like the I don't know. Thermometer? But I will just say, she was burned... She was 3,500 degrees, and everything around her, besides, like, the chair she was shit sitting in, was, like, normal. That's like, spooky. not burned. And there wasn't evidence of self-immolation, not to be... There was not evidence of self-immolation, and one leg of hers remained not burned. In 1970, Margaret Hogan was 89 years old. She lived in Dublin, Ireland. She also was discovered burned in her house, and both of her feet and legs remained, but everything else was fine. so weird. In 1980, Henry Thomas, he was 73, was found dead, burned, in South Wales in his home, and his legs remained. In 2010, 
Michael Faraday in County Galway, Ireland, was also found burned in his house. I don't know about his extremities. <laughs> and in 2017, John Molin was found in Tottenham, London. Actually, witnessed in Tottenham, London, walking down the street on fire. Um, he was witnessed by some bystanders to catch fire, so it was not felt to be self-immolation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and ultimately was rushed to... A, I think they like put out the fire, but they rushed him to a hospital and he didn't make it, so he died from his burns. So what we are talking about today is spontaneous human combustion. What do you know about this, Grace? Um, almost nothing. Yeah, I know more now than I did five minutes ago. <laughs> so, for the past couple hundred years, it's been sort of a fringe medical diagnosis or like a cause of death, right? Like it's it, a zebra. It, it's a zebra. <laughs> it's a zebra. Honestly, if your patient comes in charred except for their legs, then they might be self-satisfied. But honestly, like, so this is, this has been actually published in medical literature in the past because they are trying to, there's been multiple attempts to try to figure out if this is a legitimate thing that could happen uh, or if it's, if it's always a a different explanation. And so like, I, I guess, what are we talking about? So, so, the idea of spontaneous human combustion, so the com- combustion involves a chemical process that I forget the formula for. What is it? CO2 or something? I don't remember. It involves something. Um, but basically... Oxygen, heat... Yeah, oxygen, heat, water, right? I no, not know, water. Yeah, water. It produces water. Yeah. I think it involves CO2. When the human body burns, the most significant fuel for combustion is fat which contains long hydrocarbon chains. When combusting completely, those hydrocarbons react with oxygen in the air to yield carbon dioxide, water, and heat. But anyway, so it, um, it's combustion, but the point is it has to be something that's, it has to involve those basic elements, but it also has to be something that's flammable and it has to raise to a certain temperature that, that can ignite the combustion and then it uh, results in combustion. And the the reason that these cases and others throughout history have prompted a lot of suspicion and, and fascination is because people have been found without an explanation for why they burned, although we'll get to how that maybe is a little exaggerated, and also without a lot of surrounding damage to yeah. to the house. Like, the house wasn't on fire, it's just the person yeah. on fire. Um so there, so many people believe that spontaneous human combustion exists, and so much so that it is in extensive literature. And the most famous case in literature is a in Charles Dickens's Bleak House, which um, involves a, a guy who survives only on gin, and then he spontaneously combusts and dies. So. Um, that, that, that's the thought is that there, this is a possibility and it was published, um, in some, there was like a, a basically a, uh, like review in the British medical journal, I believe that showed the common characteristics between spontaneous combustion cases and the, they are as follows chronic alcoholics, Mm. which I mean, I guess you can kind of see the connection there if Mm -hmm. it's pretty flammable. Elderly females, mm. lighted substance nearby. Yeah. That's, this doesn't sound very spontaneous. <laughs> right, so we'll talk it. And then hands and feet fall off. 
so they're not burned. This is like, there's so many things to worry about in life. And like, this is like things I didn't even know I had to worry about. And now you do. And little damage to other things mm-hmm. in the room. And then greasy, fetid ashes that have an offensive smell. Is that just what happens when you burn flesh? Well, I think this is like what's observed in the crime scene. Or mm-hmm. that's not a crime. It's what's observed in the scene of the accident. And when you like cremate a body, yeah, I think you cremate the body like over fire over flames like at high heat so it doesn't it leaves ashes like mm-hmm. i don't think there's any like smell yeah. this is like basically like if a human being or is to naturally just like burn yeah it smells really bad yeah and there's grease Ew. so basically they did a forensic investigation in 1984 at a lot of these cases that had been um reported in the uh, in the literature and in the media and what they found was that, as you sort of suggested, there is a lot of times they didn't identify, but there was a, heat, a lighted source nearby, like a candle or mm-hmm. um, or some sort of like fire, like open fire. Mm-hmm. And um, and basically they also like made the, the point that fires burn upwards. Mm-hmm. So like if so there's basically it would make sense if there's not so many flammable things around them that the person might burn, Mm -hmm. but like the whole room wouldn't burn Mm -hmm. if there's like not a way, because it's not going to spread laterally unless there's like really highly flammable substances. Anyway, any thoughts right now? Let's see. I think that, well, I don't want to be too much of a Debbie Downer about this, <laughs> but I was going to say, like, I think, like, in all the cases of some, like, accidental death, like, if you're the CSI investigator, that's a little redundant, if you're the crime scene investigator, and you, like, come to a scene and someone's died, like, some percentage of them, you're going to figure out the mechanism, and some percentage of them, you're not, and that doesn't mean that like there wasn't just a candle that you didn't find (laughs) but yeah 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 but like 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 these could all just be not spontaneous combustion right yeah i think that is i think that's the feeling of a lot of people um the skeptics the skeptics but there's also the idea that even if like why do people like why do some people just like light on fire from a candle and not like burned on like why is it a, like a contained burn yeah to the right. person and it burns their torso and their right and like their, it's a specific pattern. yeah um i have an answer for that potentially it is very disgusting mm-hmm. um so so well first of all basically the the thought is that these are patients people um not patients but i think of a lot of our patients with this because it Basically, it, the idea is that it's low-mobility people. Mm-hmm. So elderly people that don't have a lot of way to get out of the way of a flame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also a high association with cigarette smoking. Mm-hmm. So in, in that guy that was walking down the street, sure. he later, the thought was that he had been smoking a cigarette and dropped it on his clothing and lit on fire. Yeah. Because that's the other thing. A cigarette, like, if you burn up... Your cigarette is gone. There's no evidence of the cigarette. Yeah, none. It's gone. 
except for like the pack of cigarettes that's five feet away from me that was spared. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So cigarettes, low mobility, and honestly, uh, there's this woman that I walk. Uh, that's in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Have I showed you? I her? know I've met her. I mean, I haven't met no, her. No, 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 not 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 who you're thinking of. There is like this window of a uh, one of my neighbors where oh my I God. always am walking by the window, yeah, and I see, and I see that I have. Yeah. And I always see this woman in her chair, and she has a very bad kyphosis, and she just sits all day in her chair, and like she could spontaneously combust. <laughs> That's so sad. This whole thing is very sad. This is sad, but I told you it would be... Yeah. Okay. So... <laughs> you were warned. I have a lighter end to this, but but basically, like, it, it the thought is that it's people that can't get out of the way of, their, of the fire if mm-hmm. they get light on fire. And then there is the disgusting thing, which is called the wick effect. And the idea is that if your body... So if your clothing catches on fire... Presumably, it should just, like, burn burn your skin. Like, it should burn, and then burn your skin, and then be done. But what happens is, and this has been observed in re- by scientists in, in pigs, is it the clothing and the, like, chair you're sitting on or whatever burns, and then the fat in your body melts into the material, and like creates a slow burn like basically feeds the fuel mm-hmm. for a, for a long time mm-hmm. so it's like a candle mm-hmm. like you act as the wick of a candle and if you can't move then that's what happens and your feet have almost no fat and that's why they always are spared speak for yourself <laughs> cankles grace has cankles everyone <laughs> Um, so isn't that really horrifying? That's really horrifying. And macabre. That's, that's macabre. That's what the word macabre was made for this. I love it though. Um, also I just want to tell our listeners who have no way of knowing this, but there's a candle in this room right now that's lit and I really And its just, name is Colette. I want to go blow it out. Cause it's a person. No. You... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that was, that got way more macabre. Oh God. Okay. Sorry, Colette. You don't listen to this podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> So then a couple other things just to round it out. Ketosis mm-hmm. is thought to maybe be a contributing factor. When people have a lot of ketones for alcoholism or diabetes, mm-hmm. they just are more flammable. So we should have an f- anti-flammable room at Moffitt for the, ke- for the ketotics. I think all of our rooms should be anti-flammable rooms. <laughs> and then there's a couple of like little pseudoscientific explanations which i like the best um one is in 1995 there was a guy i forget his name who um thought that there was a subatomic particle called a pyrotron that um basically ignites with matter in your body to to cause you to um to spontaneously combust and he was pretty convinced about this but it was who was this person you said this was a, he guy. Was a scientist <laughs> <laughs> he, he was a, he was a, some scientist. He was a All right, doctor in, in post we'll have to figure out who. Like, he was oh man, he was like probably Charles Manson or something. Um, then there's also the thought that this could be related to poltergeists because poltergeists always act through humans to like create mm-hmm. problems in in households and whatever, and it's basically um, the thought that the evil spirit can 
make you combust by activating your kinetic mm-hmm. energy. Um, and then ball lightning, which I think we should cover on a different yeah. um, podcast, but it is a like electrical energy um, that's unexplained and might light people on fire um, as part of its sequelae. So no one knows, you know, the, the smoke is still hazy on spontaneous combustion. Do you get it? <laughs> but it is an interesting topic and I think it is it's important to feel a little fear of fire even if that fire like I feel like it's important to think that like we have the capacity to to catch on fire to catch on fire yeah because Um, like yeah that that fear has taken us far in our evolution (laughs) as a species exactly so you know, I don't know. I, I I do think it is probably just common explanations, but it is a little weird that we keep seeing this pattern of like people in chairs, like with their their yeah. torsos burn. It, it does seem like it's always people of older age um, yeah. that are maybe not taking the best care of themselves. So, uh, I guess we'll never know, or maybe one day we will. I have a couple other things to talk about because I thought with human, what were you gonna say? Before I move oh, on to my well, next I was going to talk about barn fires, which maybe you're about to talk about. No, I wasn't. Oh, talk okay. about barn fires because, yeah. Go okay, ahead. great. So um, I learned about this from my dad because he's a volunteer firefighter in Vermont. So they see fires and they also see barns and they see barn fires. And barn fires, other than obviously your barn can catch a fire a bunch of different ways, but there's this phenomenon where barns spontaneously combust. Oh, wait. I think you maybe mentioned this thing I, one yeah. time before. But, the, it's, but I'm listening to it with New Year's because this is so cool. <laughs> so basically, you, under the right conditions, sealed or like semi-sealed bags of hay can spontaneously combust. And I'm about to reveal my like utter lack of knowledge on hay and how hay is stored but basically the oh, conditions man. i can't believe you don't know about hay <laughs> <laughs> the conditions of that are supposed to be necessary for this to happen is hay is a little bit wet and the bag is semi-sealed so that it's there's oxygen in the in the bag but in the center of the hay there's very little oxygen and the reason i don't know if this is like theorized or demonstrated but the the, the the reason that at least some people believe uh, that these conditions are necessary is that there's some anaerobic bacteria that grows in the middle of the hay in this like wet hypoxic environment and uh, it creates in, in like some of its interaction with its environment it creates this super super exothermic reaction and that heats the hay enough that it catches on fire and then there's oxygen and then there's oxygen so it spreads so people will have barns that like there's not, there's no reason for them to be catching on fire, but they'll just spontaneously combust. Can you imagine a farm in Vermont in the middle of December? That's some spooky shit. Yeah, yeah. That's cool, though. It's cool that they figured out why it happened. Wait, so you, has your dad had to respond to these? Yes, he had to, was responding to a barn fire. And He's was possessed like, now. Like, that's some really scary There, I just told you about the bacteria. <laughs> He's not possessed. But I'm still a poltergeist believer. Yeah, so that's... Vermont is a spooky place all in all, though. It really is. That's really cool, though. Like, 
I mean, it's not cool if your if your barn burns down, but it's it's interesting that bacteria can do that, right? Like to humans that have taken over this world. Yeah. I mean, I guess bacteria are still winning in a lot of other ways too, but that's really cool. Yeah. Like, man, I'm sure they found ways to fix that, right? If they know yeah, that this uh, can happen. Just like the storage, so it's affected the way that people store their hay, so they're sort of like dry it out all the way or seal it all the way or whatever. Hmm. Cool. I was going to talk about animals spontaneously combusting. Um, so one of the reasons that people believe that human spontaneous combustion is not a real phenomenon is that we don't see animals spontaneously combust. Because one of the proposed mechanisms of humans is that methane gas in your in your bowel like reacts and you combust. And that doesn't happen in cows. And cows have much more methane than we do. But there has been one case of a cow um, exploding, and it is because... So basically, a man was milking his cow, and the cow exploded, and its head popped off, and the man got knocked unconscious. And it was because <laughs> it was because the cow had eaten a detonator that day no. <laughs> by accident. <laughs> so that that's one example. Um, a couple of other things... <laughs> That would be something that I would put in quotes in my note if I were the physician taking care of that man. <laughs> the, the cow <laughs> exploded and its head popped off and then I went in comatose and that's how I I arrived and with a meth positive urine on Margaret Street. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cow quote exploded <laughs> end quote. Um, so then there have been other, uh, other cases of animals with bombs um, which have been human created obviously in the in the world war the great world war two uh the uk studied rat bombs in which they put flammable material in rat carcasses and then the plan was to put them outside of german like artillery storage places or something and then the the thought was that they would burn these rat carcasses and then blow up um the the germans weapons and i don't think it ever went into production but the germans found out about it and and basically spent so much time like searching for the rats that it just it was like nice. a success. They like the gaslit the... them into yeah. thinking that rats would explode. Then the US study Wait, why? I wonder why rats like well, because I, I think it's, like, running. the idea... Wait, no, wait, I'm no, sorry, no, sorry, dead, dead, dead rats. Dead rats, yeah. I thought that they were, like, putting... I thought no, there no, was, no. like, a Grey's Anatomy situation where there's a bomb, a ticking bomb. No, but... The, so, rat. the U.S. studied bat bombs in oh. which live bats would hold bombs and then detonate <laughs> them over... Um, How would you get them to... I don't know. I this mean, was like, this, this is why never... people needed drones. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this is... <laughs> and like, then... This is going to make you really upset. Oh, my God. Anti-tank dogs. Oh. The Russians did this. Oh the Ruskies. They had dogs that were trained to run towards tanks and, and blow them up by the Germans. When you say There's tanks, a whole Wikipedia page about this. Run towards tanks? Yeah, German tanks. Why would they explode the tanks by running towards them? With the bombs. Oh, I thought you meant... I was thinking landmine. Like no, no, they have bombs on them. Oh, God. No That's horrifying. And then there were kamikaze oh. dolphins that were trained to attack submarines. With and bombs then, or just in general? <laughs> with, with bombs, I think. <laughs> with guns. And then there's a couple... There's, did you know that ants explode? 
and it's a process called autothesis, and they have these poison-filled, it says mandibular glands, that line their whole body, and basically they, like, arch their whole body and shoot out poison everywhere when they're, Damn. like, in certain cases when they're trying to be attacked. And then the they're, la- like, protecting the colony. Because they're protecting the colony, yeah. I mean, they do everything. They're, like... Yeah, they're one of They're, like, them. the hero poster child of communism, I yeah. will say. They're um, the residents that all residency programs exactly. are Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and bees, too. Uh, bees are pretty good. Um, and then the last one I'll just talk about is... In Hamburg in 2005, they call it the Pool of Death. There were 1,000 toads that exploded. And the toads... (laughs) And the toads basically were just, like, swell up. And people would see them swell up. And then they would just blow up. And basically what... The, they thought happened. So toads have this like response where they like swell up when they, um, when they're like feeling threatened. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a bunch of predatory crows in the area that were feeding on toads livers. And they were by, they were poking holes in the toads skin to eat the livers, like to get them out. Oh and then the toads would swell up, but they would have a hole in their body. And so then they would, like, start to, like, create uh, some sort of, like, chemical or gas reaction in their body, and they would explode. And it happened to 1,000 toads. Um, questions about that. But, But there was a hole in their body, so why did that make them explode more? I think because, like, they had, like, bowel perf or something. I don't know. That's what it said. Huh. And did they all explode at, like, the same time over what period of time? It was, like, over the course of... Two days, I think. Oh, okay. That's yeah. still pretty bad. Anyway, that's about that's about explosions, um, human and otherwise, and barn. And I think that sort of wraps it up. Yeah. What did last time we ended with something we were each looking forward to? Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, and I was about to go skiing. Oh, that was like a whole, that was more than a month ago. Um, what are you looking forward to? Well, I'm about to go on vacation and it's yes, almost you your can. birthday. And it's yeah, it's my birthday vacation. This has been my birthday month. What are you most looking forward to from va- for vacation? Uh well, for my birthday on the actual day, I'm having a party in Boston, not here. Without any of your residency. That's right. That's correct. <laughs> so that'll be really fun. <laughs> that's really nice. The party party, not the no friends <laughs> part. That's nice. I am looking forward to uh, right before I start trauma, I'm going to San Luis Obispo with some of my co-residents who are hopefully going to listen to this podcast and we're going to surf and it's going to be nice. And, um, I think, uh, it'll help me enter trauma with a more positive attitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to surf every Sunday on trauma. Yeah. That's how you keep, keep yourself alive. Yeah. Keep yourself alive. Keep yourself alive. Don't burn. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And um, just lie on your side when you drink alcohol. Oh, God. I'm just...